0: everyone welcome back to another episode of talking Tudors. i'm your host natalie gruniger thank you so much for joining me today I'd like to begin by thanking the sponsor of today's episode, Sandra Bird, author of the Tudor Ladies in Waiting series. A rich alchemy of fact and fiction, these critically acclaimed books chronicle the glittering court lives of three queens and their closest friends and companions. The novels brim with heartwarming and heartbreaking circumstances and heroines who choose lives worth risking for. Book 1, To Die For, follows Queen Anne Boleyn through the viewpoint of Margaret Wyatt. Library Journal awarded it a Best Book of the Year pick and said the novel brings history to life in exquisite detail. Book 2, The Secret Keeper, uncovers love and betrayal in the life of Queen Catherine Parr. Library Journal calls this book atmospheric, full of twists and a must-read for Tudor fiction fans. Finally, book three, Roses Have Thorns, draws close to Queen Elizabeth I through Ellen von Sneckenborg, who transformed into Helena, the Marchioness of Northampton. I loved all three books and found this concluding one masterful, impeccably researched and deliciously detailed storytelling. The series is available at Amazon.com. I'd also, of course, like to acknowledge and thank the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. As an independent podcaster, this really does mean a lot to me. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. February's prize is a copy of The Queen's Frog Prince, The Courtship of Elizabeth I and the Duke of Anjou by David Lee. Thank you so much to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTutors. Now on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Heaver Castle's new exhibition, Catherine and Anne, Queen's Rivals, Mothers, are Dr. Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tutors. I am so excited to be here today with my wonderful friends Kate McCaffrey and Dr. Owen Emerson and I'm going to get you guys to introduce yourself. So Kate would you like
1: to go first? Yes yeah my name is Kate McCaffrey and I am a historian and one of the assistant curators at Hever Castle in Kent.
2: Hello, yes. Uh, My name is Dr Owen Emerson. I'm a social and cultural historian. Uh, I'm the castle historian and assistant curator at Hever with Kate. We are partners in crime.
0: What a team it is. It's the dream team, as I say, that curatorial team. And and so we're here to talk about something very exciting, the new exhibition at Hever Castle. So Catherine and Anne, Queen's Rivals Mothers. So I'd love to know what actually inspired this particular exhibition.
1: Yes, so this exhibition was very excitingly inspired by my own personal research with one of our books of hours in our collection. It's our 1527 printed book of hours, which I've spoken to you about before. Um, And part of my MA thesis research, which focused on this book, found that Anne Boleyn was not the only leading 16th century woman to own a copy of this very same printing. And in fact, another of Henry's wives, his first wife and the Queen, of England at the time of that book's production, Catherine of Aragon, also owned a copy of the very same book. So we we wanted to use this very rare sort of glimpse of a moment of unity uh, between these two traditional rivals to re-examine their relationship and, and look at what else they shared in common, because really there was a lot more... That, that united them, other than just a, a husband and a prayer book, um, they had a lot in common. And so we wanted to use this kind of original research as a way to widen our lens and, and, and see the other things that, that Catherine and Anne shared, um, which really was quite a lot.
0: So exciting. And I know, so you've got one on loan from the Morgan Library. That's Catherine of Aragon's Book of Hours. And it's together with your beautiful Book of Hours. So this is, yeah, this is incredible. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the actual prayer books themselves in terms of similarities or just a little bit more detail into those would be wonderful.
1: Yes. So the uh, two printed books, although they're from the same printed batch, so they were both printed in Paris by uh, Germain Hardouin, who was a very prolific French printer at the time. And he printed them in 15. for use in the year 1528. And what's interesting, although they are the same printing, they are decorated quite obviously differently. Um, So that's why it's fantastic that we have Catherine's on display as well as Anne's, because we've chosen one specific page for them both to be open on the same page so that you can see uh, the decorative differences across the two copies. So we've chosen the nativity scene in both um, books. And in Anne's copy, you can see we have extra gold Page borders where Catherine's has no gold page borders. In Anne's, there are also added roundel borders with inscriptions in them around the images that Catherine's does not have. And Anne's also has extra red and blue corner decoration um, added to her her book as well. So the illuminations are are very different. And actually, the the images themselves are different, although they would have been from the same woodcut. For example, in Anne's copy, she's got quite a young Jesus. um, And in sorry, young Joseph. And in in Catherine's copy, it's quite an old Joseph. And in Catherine's copy, they're outside. And in Anne's copy, they're inside the stable. So there's all these kinds of decorative differences, which are really interesting individual insights, I think, um, because these books were highly personalised. So Whoever gifted these books to Catherine and Anne was aware of their individual intended audience and so had them customised deliberately at different levels, which is particularly interesting, knowing that at this point, it's a very crucial point in uh, the changing structure of the Henrician court. Um, Anne's star is very much on the rise at this point. She is the confirmed uh, queen to be, and Catherine star is on the wane. So the fact Anne has the more decorated prayer book uh, is a really interesting insight, I think.
0: Absolutely. And do you think this is something that Anne would have commissioned herself or you mentioned that it may have been a gift?
1: Yes, it's still something that I'm researching, that we're researching, but um, it's possible either that Anne and Catherine heard of these books being produced um, and added their own individual decoration uh, from the start of production, or that they were gifted by someone um, to members of the Queen's household, including the Queen herself. Um, There's a couple of theories we're working on, um, a couple of very attractive but as yet unprovable possibilities, one being that they were gifts from Henry himself, or maybe even by Cardinal Wolsey. Well, that's an interesting theory. I like,
0: let's talk a little bit more about the insights that they offer into not only Anne and Catherine's faith, but also their relationship as well.
2: This is a really, really great question. And I think. Kate's research really illuminates that this is almost kind of the last point of unity between Catherine and Anne. After these books are, you know, received or purchased by the the queen and the future queen to be, they really don't have any more time left that we could consider uh, in any meaningful way, unified. I think, you know, that this is their last point of unity. And we know that Anne is still in Catherine's household at this point. It must have been slightly troubling at times. And we know that Anne is escaping the heat of court and um, because of the scandal that is erupting uh, in Catherine's household because of Henry's attentions towards her. But these two women undoubtedly would have been together and most likely with these books as well. Um, So one of the most striking things I think for me in in Kate's research is that this is their, their last moment of unity. And one of the things I'm really struck by is actually Kate's brilliant attention to how these books were used by these women. Now, there are English prayers inserted into these books, but they are chiefly written in Latin. And one of the things that really struck me through Kate's close analysis of the books was... that it was quite clear that Anne's book um, had more haptic wear, so wear via touch or even by uh, the pressing of lips in in some occasions, to the the English prayers, whereas there was far more evidence of haptic wear uh, for the Latin prayers in Catherine's book, uh, which I think gives us a really interesting insight. We know that Anne champions reading the Bible in the vernacular. We have many examples of that. Also, I was struck that this actually talks also about perhaps a more overlooked aspect of Anne Boleyn's faith, and that is that, to our eyes, it probably would have looked entirely conventional. And Anne, I think, as a reformer, or someone with reformist leanings or an open eye to it, must have had a very good understanding of the the traditional approach to faith shall we say the the typically catholic approach so actually you know this is a this is an entirely traditional text isn't it Kate so the fact that Anne owned number a number of these texts um, sort of challenges that overly simplified shall we say lens that has often been placed on Anne as a you know chiefly a reformist actually she had a really really good understanding of traditional Catholic belief uh, in order to know how to how she wanted it to be reformed.
1: I think that's such an important point just to to emphasize there, because I think these it's often overlooked in our understanding of Anne's religious beliefs. You know, when I've read books and articles specifically about Anne's religion, often her use of books of ours is not examined or not focused on as much. And I think it's because it actually bucks the trend of what we know of her as this reformist. Um, but, But it's so prescient what Owen said there, which is that Anne's interest in reform has to come And is rooted in a genuine interest in Christianity in general and in the traditional religion. She has to be deeply knowledgeable knowledgeable about the the traditional religion in order to know what she wants to reform. And I think that's something that's often overlooked. And I think her use of several books of ours, we are lucky enough to have two at Hever, um, you know, it's a really important tool for us to remember that actually maybe the pace of her religious development was not as obvious or fast or explicit as we've maybe thought in the past. And haptic wear that, that Owen mentioned as well is, is a really interesting uh, part of the books that, that I love particularly um, that there are these decorative differences, but there are also differences in how these two women used and loved their books. Um, and it's fabulous that you can see the literal remnants of that on the pages today. You can see the marks left behind from the grease and oils on their fingertips and where they have folded pages down and the parchments creased from reading or, or the text has been rubbed while they've been reading. It's just they're some of my my most favorite um, intimate insights, I think.
0: That is utterly fascinating. That really is to think of them using the books in that way. And I think people are always really interested in how much time people have often asked me this, and it's a tricky one to answer, but maybe one of you would like to to talk about this. How much time someone like Anne Boleyn or Catherine of Aragon would have spent in religious acts. So, you know, my understanding is that it's a a very large part of the day and it's sort of the backbone to everything else that you do. But perhaps you want to talk a little bit about the different ways that they are expressing their faith at this point.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, books of hours in their title are books that were meant to be uh, read and prayed with at certain hours of the day at the eight canonical hours throughout the day that were based on the kind of religious life of monasteries. And books of hours were made to be more accessible versions of that religious routine for everyday people um or everyday people who could afford a book of hours which was not your your average person um so i think it, it's really hard for us to grasp like you said it's it's really crucial that that we try and understand how much religion governed their everyday life whether that was uh, more in a traditional vein like Catherine or a more reformist one like Anne. Um, every their whole daily routine from from waking to going to bed was governed in some way by the routine of praying, of chanting, of going to chapel, of group religious activities together, I think is really key when we're looking at, at women in history and particularly women at court at this time. It was an appropriate way for women to spend hours in their day um, by group prayer, group reading of these books, um, which is perhaps when Anne and Catherine last used these books was perhaps in a group together reading in court. I think what's important with women specifically is remembering their differing levels of literacy and fluency in Latin. Um, it's really hard to say, you know, exactly how much most women were able to read. We know that that Anne and Catherine were highly educated, but obviously that was unusual. Um, so group reading by reading things aloud was a really important part of learning and of religious engagement for women. So yeah, I don't think we can understate how much their everyday lives were governed by religion and how much that was just an... an obvious part of their daily routine, they wouldn't have even noticed it, because that's how they would have been brought up.
0: And I'm so glad I recently saw the Guardian article that was on about the written about the exhibition. And I was so happy to see that it focused on Anne's genuine piety Mm -hmm. rather than other aspects that are perhaps more popularized. (laughs) I was very happy with that. But um, the other thing I wanted to talk maybe, Owen, you'd like to tell us a little bit about, you know, we often pit these women against each other. And I know Kate and I have spoken about that before. But what similarities are there between Catherine and Anne that perhaps we haven't focused on sufficiently up until this
2: point? You know, I think there are a huge amount of similarities between these two women. They may not have agreed on the reformist leanings that Anne entertained, but my goodness, could they talk faith together? They both had a very deep and very meaningful relationship with God and I think both were incredibly pious women. Piety and Anne Boleyn aren't, as you say, um, particularly synonymous and they should be because, you know, I think all of Anne's decisions, all of her I don't even want to call it game playing. I, I I believe that Anne Boleyn's relationship with Henry VIII was sort of shaped by her faith, actually. We we're often encouraged to believe, for example, that her not putting out was some kind of game. Uh, actually, I think it's far more to do with um, her faith and and uh, the fact that she didn't want to have sex before marriage. So, yes, I, I think we often deny Anne a genuine uh, religious experience, whereas we almost burden Catherine with only looking at her as someone who is pious and sad and there was far more to Catherine of Aragon than that. So they they are they are often um on, on a pendulum, I think. And the reality is somewhere much closer in the middle and because of that distance that we we put between these two women we often fail to see their similarities and you know they 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 were both devout they were both highly educated women I have a feeling both of them were far more intelligent than Henry VIII. Um, <laughs> I can guarantee and I that, that oh, and I, can... <laughs> I, I think that could be an issue at times. I really do. And um, they were both incredibly cultured. These are women who, um, for example, are leading, I would say, leading lights in terms of the arts in engendering uh, serious patronage of artists and musicians. And um, these are Renaissance women. Um, Henry is, you know, the, famed for... trying to be this renaissance king he had two queens you know his first two queens at least um were incredibly cultured women so i think they had a huge amount in common and we often overlook those crucial years between 1522 and the moment whenever it was that Henry first turned his, his attentions to Anne. And because there's this paucity of uh, information about their relationship, it's very easy to overlook it. Um, but the fact that Anne remains in Catherine's service during this time must suggest that they had something of a congenial relationship, at least. Um, it would have been very easy to part ways with Anne's employment because she was in Catherine's employee. If they didn't get on, so we often overlook that, and and I think that is because we are so encouraged to pit these women against each other, and um, we are encouraged to see Catherine as the the true queen and Anne as the usurper, uh, the whore, uh, the woman who you know took uh, the king away from uh, his first wife and we often allow henry to be sort of abdicate all responsibility for what actually happened to these women as well so i'm hoping that because of the presence of these two gorgeous books that kate has so amazingly been able to reunite in the Berlin's great chamber at Hever, our visitors will have an opportunity to Apply a different lens to these women, and actually give them both the their hearing that they deserve. These are amazing, amazing women, and we have a lot of time for them, Aheva.
0: Such wonderful points. I, I totally agree with you. I think we often underestimate the impact that, that Queen Catherine had on a developing Anne Boleyn. You know, we talk about Margaret of Austria, we talk about Queen Claude, and rightfully so. But I think all those years, Catherine was was a very successful queen and Anne was a very observant person, as we know. So she would have been observing. And I know people often like to, to wonder whether Anne emulated Catherine, I think, completely. And these books offer just one little piece of evidence to support that, but there's so much more, isn't there? But I, I also wanted to ask you, I know that we've got the wonderful books of hours, but I know there are some other wonderful things to see at this exhibition. So what else can visitors expect to see
1: there? We have a wonderful array, actually, of, of items on display, not just uh, the two books of hours of the two queens. Um, we have a beautiful and never-before-exhibited panel portrait of Catherine, Catherine, Catherine of Aragon, which was very kindly lent to us by the Fawcett family, um, who got in touch with Owen, actually, after they saw the unveiling of our um, Catherine, once Catherine Parr, now Catherine of Aragon portrait, which we renamed last year. They saw that on on the television and and thought, oh, that looks, she looks awfully similar to a portrait that we have of this woman. Could this be Catherine of Aragon? And she certainly is. And so it's fantastic that we've been able to loan her, Um, again, never before exhibited and she's placed in the great chamber overlooking her own book of hours so it's a really beautiful place to have her centered we also have um, some beautiful miniatures of the key players including a 16th century miniature of Catherine of Aragon um, loaned to us by Dr Elizabeth Norton which is just beautiful and to have on display and we have um, a panel from Dunstable Priory with Catherine of Aragon's arms on it. So it's the Tudor rose um, combined with her pomegranate. And then we also finish our exhibition with some outstandingly made costumes from two of my favorite period dramas actually one uh, being the recent stars production of Becoming Elizabeth um, with the costumes in that I thought were absolutely fantastic and we have um, on display one from worn by Catherine Parr one by Edward one by Mary and one by Elizabeth so we kind of translate the theme of Catherine and Anne in the first half of our exhibit through to the relationship between their daughters uh, in the second half and, and that obviously is another huge moment of unity. Between between Catherine and Anne, maybe their most, biggest moment of unity is the fact that they were both mothers to not the longed-for male heir, but in fact to two daughters who became England's first two queens regnant and whose legacies have long outlived that of Edward, of, of Henry's eventual son. So we wanted to examine Catherine and Anne's roles as mothers and map their tumultuous relationship onto the relationship of their daughters. And so we do that with the help of these gorgeous costumes um, from Becoming Elizabeth, but also possibly my favourite costume, uh, which is the coronation gown worn by Kate Blanchett in the Elizabeth films from the early 2000s. And we have the full gown uh, with all of her regalia. So we have the, the crown, the orb and the scepter. And putting that dress together was an absolute highlight for me of the installation of the exhibition. We were just giddy unwrapping it and dressing her. She is, I mean, what a tiny waist but my word I would love to be putting that on myself uh, we, we may or may not have been tempted to try on the crown but it's just the most outstanding piece of art and actually it's very historically accurate the way that it's been made so there's about five or six layers underneath what you see on display um, and it's all very heavy and, and heavily embroidered and it's just beautiful so to have that because that is the a, a faithful replica of the coronation portrait of Elizabeth and and it would have been the robes that Mary wore as the first Queen of England, Queen Regnant of England before Elizabeth. So it's an, a nice moment of unity again to end the exhibition on uh, when we're looking at the books of ours as, as a lens of unity between Catherine and Anne. We're finally ending the exhibition with the coronation gown as a moment of unity between Mary and Elizabeth. So we really have a, I think, Though we say so ourselves, a wonderful array of of items on display this year to hopefully capture the attention of of people who are coming into the exhibit from all backgrounds and all sort of um, levels of knowledge.
0: Well, I think I saw some videos that Owen posted having some fun with those <laughs> costumes. <laughs> it looked wonderful, and I love how it's sort of like a full circle when you're talking about that unity. It's how you begin and end there. So that that's really wonderful. And the panel portrait—is that do, has that been dated at all?
2: No and so part of the the loan agreement from the very generous Fawcett family was that I would conduct some research into the painting during its loan period with us and I I think we're getting quite close to finding what kind of pattern that it came from I found another example of a portrait very similar to it and I have a sneaking suspicion that it may be older than the Fawcett's uh, original Thought so we yes over the next year while we have it in our possession aren't we so lucky to have it and um, we will be uh, conducting more research into it so watch this space
0: exciting exciting I love it and and there are pictures online if anyone wants to go and have a look I think oh and you posted one or Kate or probably both of you posted <laughs> on <laughs> social media so what <laughs> are you ultimately hoping that visitors will take away from this experience this exhibition.
1: I think we're hoping that visitors will be thinking afresh about what we know um, about Catherine and Anne. We hope that people will be joining us in reappraising their relationship, in challenging the traditional narratives that have pitted them against one another, in also challenging the patriarchal stereotypes which have painted them rather one-dimensionally as um, the mistress and the wife and that's about it so we really hope that we are tapping into this kind of I think very current movement which is re-examining the wives of Henry VIII as individuals outside of his influence um, and of admiring and appreciating both women for being, as Owens mentioned, incredibly intelligent, brilliantly formidable, um, highly educated, pious, captivating women. Uh, I think it comes back again to that Henry probably had a type and both of these women uh, fit those kind of characteristics of these strong, strong women. And so I think what we hope people leave with is—is yes—is just a sense of challenging the traditional stereotypical narratives and, and and rethinking what we know through this lens of this new original research. Do you want to add anything, Owen?
2: Yeah, I I really hope that our visitors can learn something new, feel a bit challenged. I also hope they can start to feel Heaver in a new way. And um, we've set up for example, the best bedchamber with a gorgeous bed from 1485, uh, which used to be on the other side of the castle, but which we've now put in situ. And it's very much the kind of bed that would have been enjoyed by Thomas and Elizabeth in that space. And indeed, during the time that we're talking about in, you know, the 1520s, the late 1520s, Anne Boleyn herself would have occupied that best bedchamber when she set up her own little mini court, shall we say at heaver and I, I'm hoping that people will start to feel what it actually would have been like, And um, so for example that room is set up really to acknowledge the fact that Anne was there when she had the sweating sickness, so you should hear um, the crackle of the fire in that space, you should be able to smell um, some of the medicines that Dr Butts would have been applying to her and actually grind some some of them up yourself as well. And he also narrated some of the love letters that Henry was bombarding Anne with at that time. And the other thing that I really hope that people get out of the exhibition is a sense of how privileged these people were, because the gowns that we have been able to get, as Kate said, are absolutely sumptuous. They are really accurate and uh, detailed sort of uh, reconstructions, really, of gowns as they appeared in, in paintings. And I really want people to sort of understand that the women that we're talking about were in a A very privileged minority there were very few people uh, who could afford to wear these sumptuous cloths and were adorned with these ridiculous amounts of jewels and actually i'm i'm hoping they they find it quite quite fun actually to see these kind of really faithful representations of the the kind of clothes that these women were wearing because they're, they're beautiful they're absolutely stunning so i I hope there's a bit of glitz and glam uh, for people to uh, explore as well.
0: I love it. And I love that you're engaging all the senses in that experience. I think that's so, so very important. And and you're so right. This is not just um, your average knight's daughter, is it, Owen, that we <laughs> often hear about. This is a very wealthy, wealthy, wealthy family. So that is absolutely fantastic. I, I want to now move the conversation a little bit to the recent research that Dr. Simon Thurley recently undertook at the castle, because I haven't spoken to you about that just yet. I'd love to hear about this new information that's recently come to light about the history
1: of the castle? Yes, so Professor Simon Thurley did come to Hever Castle a good few years ago now, it was actually before I joined in this capacity, um, and he did a really wonderfully in-depth uh, survey, architectural survey, of the castle, um, and has, through his research, uh, given us a lot to think about and to use in representing the castle over the next few years, which is going to be a huge project uh, and very exciting project moving forward. But he's both given us uh, completely new things that we never... considered before or never realized before but also confirmed uh, potential theories that we had about about the castle's history um a few big ones spring to my mind and that is uh the date of the original castle itself which he has given us to 1383 as opposed to 100 years before and this means however that the defensive features in our gatehouse uh, which are all largely original which is fantastic he believes. Believes to be some of the oldest working defensive features, such as the portcullises in Europe, which is just an incredible incredible claim um, for us to use and to celebrate so he's really fleshed out um, the medieval part of Hever's history um, but he's also given us uh, depth to what we know about Hever now during the uh, Berlin's period, our most famous owners but also brought to the forefront, I think this is Owen nice personal favourite part of his research, another wife of Henry VIII and another Anne Anne of Cleves and the importance of her tenure at Hever which lasted for 17 years and he's shown us that three key additions to the castle that you still see and walk through and love today as a visitor were made during the Anne of Cleves' tenure. So we know that she made some huge alterations to the castle, which is just so exciting for uh, what we know about our history in the 16th century. And the fact that we can now, you know, very credibly claim to be the home of two of Henry VIII's wives, his two Annes, our Anne Boleyn and our Anne of Cleves. And I think that's something that we really want to hero going forward, you know, is bringing Anne of Cleves' story to the forefront. The three areas of the castle that that we know that she added are the entrance hall on our ground floor, our staircase gallery on our middle floor and our gorgeous long gallery on our top floor. And I think the long gallery is probably one of the most popular rooms in the castle by the visitors. And so the fact that we now know that this was likely added by Anne of Cleves during her tenure is just Such an interesting new perspective on what we know about Hiva. We now know that she loved and used HeVa a lot more frequently than we might have thought once. Um, Clearly, if she's making these major additions to the space, she was obviously invested personally and financially into our little castle in Kent. So it's really, it's exciting news for us. And and we're really thrilled to, to have this much more information to use going forward.
0: difficult though although it's it's very exciting to kind of you know draw out those long-standing beliefs that you had about and ideas about people and places and and challenge yourself to open up to these new ideas because I've always loved imagining the Berlin children running in that gallery so that's kind of (laughs) that's kind of ruined that for me now I'll have to picture them somewhere else in the great hall or somewhere but do you find (laughs) that it is tricky to to kind of challenge yourself and open up to all this these new ideas and this new way of thinking about a place that you are both
2: so very familiar with yeah you know it, it is a challenge not least because we have got a, a massive team of people who've worked at Hiva for a good many number of years and they've been used to telling a very particular version of Hiva's history and wonderfully they are all so excited about this uh, new reappraisal of our history and uh, very uh, infused by it indeed so uh, very much coming on the journey with us but yes, you know, of course, we have these the preconceived ideas. These are, you know, long established ideas as well. I mean, Joseph Nash famously painted, you know, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn in the Long Gallery. And, you know, we have a wonderful diary from Queen Victoria saying, I sat in Henry VIII's chair in the Long Gallery. She didn't, sadly, um, <laughs> because we have no evidence that he ever actually visited Heath, although he certainly owned it right throughout Anne of Cleves's tenure. So, yes, you know, the most sort of excruciating thing was for me was being sent novels by people who were writing <laughs> um, about, a, about a heaver saying, have I got everything right? And I wasn't uh, allowed to say anything because this research hadn't been released. And um, so there were a fair few scenes set with Henry, Henry and Anne in the Long Gallery during this period, which might need to be revised in the second editions. <laughs> um, but honestly, though, we, we you know, I think the thing... About history is our understanding of it changes all the time, and actually, for some years now, we have been sceptical about the claim about the long gallery and it being one of the earliest in England. Not least because other other academics have questioned it too. I'm thinking of Rosalind Coop who questioned it in the 1980s. So yes, this has been on our radar for some time, but we just wanted the 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 kind of proof that we now have wonderfully. And I am so excited about actually bringing Anne of Cleves' story to the fore at Hever. When I started, the the opinion was very much that she probably didn't Stay there very much. Ian, one of our stewards, very famously used to say to me, Well, we know that she was here for one day because we have one letter that she sent to to Mary, signed from Heva. But actually, now we have a collection of many other letters that were sent to Anne Heva and that she sent from Heva over quite a long period of time. And those additions to Heva really tell us of a substantial investment in and residing in Hiva during that tenure as well. So very, very exciting to be able to tell that story in the coming years.
0: It really is really exciting. And that's a long, like 17 years, that's a long time. That's probably not something that people realise. And I think you're right, if she's investing all this time and money—a lot of money—we're talking about those three significant changes to the castle. To me, that suggests a fondness for it. Obviously, there's, there must just be something so special about Hever, really, because if you think about it, you know the Berlin's had so many other wonderful properties, much larger properties, and of course Anne of Cleves had other properties. But there's something that draws people to Hever, and I think that's that's very, very special. And I also think now with the long gallery and those other spaces, how nice is it to be able now to walk in the footsteps of Anne of Cleves? You know, I know that she was there in quite a cozy space, so we can really inhabit that space with us. I think that is really, really exciting.
1: I was just going to say, yes, that's in exactly a, a really important point, I think, Natalie, where this um, new research seems to have almost taken slightly with one hand the myths that we once loved that were associated with Hever. It's totally given with the other hand, a whole new breadth of detail that we, we didn't realise before and insights into new historical characters who we know and love, like Anne of Cleves, but also it's fleshed out what we know, for example, about the Berlin's at Hever. So when you may have once wanted to to picture them running around the long gallery we can now really firmly situate them in other areas of the castle so the the Berlin's family apartments which are, are on currently where our exhibition is where our where books of hours room is and, and the bed chamber the best bed chamber that owen mentioned earlier that we've just reset as a bed chamber those three rooms on that wing of the castle were the Berlin family apartments through and through and we know that some of the most uh life-changing um conversations for Anne happened in those rooms you know it's likely where she replied to the love letters uh, from Henry VIII it's likely where she made the decision to marry him over Christmas uh, in 1526 at Hever you can only imagine the kinds of conversations that were had in those rooms private ones but that had huge public consequences for the Blinds, for England for Europe so whereas in some ways the myths have changed. Uh, it's it's just so exciting, I think, t- to now know with more accuracy that that these rooms, particularly the Berlin Family Apartments, I know Owen and I are really excited about these when we when we represent these, um, they are, are just hugely important, hugely impressive, and, and at the very heart of Hiva, and at the very heart of the politics and religion of the time and everything that was happening in England at that moment. Uh, so it's it's really exciting in that way, I think.
2: Yes, no, I I quite agree. And I think it highlights, you know, we've always had this question, how much did the Boleyns actually use Heaver? Well, it turns out a huge amount. How much did Anne of Cleves actually use Heaver? Much more than we thought. And actually I think we we all should really understand why, because we all love it. I mean, Heva almost hasn't changed. That's one of the key things that's come out of Simon's research. The original house is still in situ. There was always this fear that it had been reconstructed over time, or even that the Berlin's had inserted a house into earlier walls. Actually, it all pretty much dates from 1383, apart from that part that Anne of Cleves added. And because it was tenanted out, so much of its history afterwards it sort of became this sleeping beauty castle which really hasn't changed all that much at all and you know what it's it was just a convenient and very beautiful place to be situated it was very close to london it was you know a half a day's ride so it was it was a convenient place to be able to escape the the pressures and heat of court and it was also very manageable. I mean, these are wealthy people. They don't need to worry about the, the running of a household. But I'm talking more about privacy here, because actually, this this is really is only a family property. You can't really entertain a huge amount of guests here. And of course, the Berlins have many other properties which they can do that in. But time and time again, they gravitate back to that little castle where they can be private, where they can go out hunting, where they can perhaps discuss things they don't want other people overhearing. So it really suits them well. It suited Anne of Cleves well too. Or rather, she adapted it to make her suit her. I have a feeling that Anne of Cleves really starts to use heaver when the palaces of Bletchingly and Richmond are taken away from her. And of course, Richmond was famed for its long galleries. So of course, Anne after that beautiful palace has been taken away from her by Edward's council, is going to want a long gallery at her perhaps more modest manor in Kent. So all of this history really helps us to make sense of why these people loved it. And actually, I think it's for many of the same reasons that we all love it too.
0: Absolutely, I totally agree with you. It's just not overwhelming like some of the other locations. It's so beautiful. It is like a fairy tale castle that you imagine when you're a child, you know, and you draw those castles. Can you give us a little bit of a hint to start wrapping this up about this new research? What developments will take place over the next few years? What can visitors expect?
1: Well, over the next three or so years, we will be representing and recurating the whole castle floor by floor, uh, using this new wonderful research. Um, And actually, the first stage of that will be finished by the end of March this year. So it's a very quick process. This first stage, we are representing the ground floor first, we're going to be going up floor by floor. So our ground floor will be represented as uh, the Aster experience. This is the floor where you can see most of William Waldorf and his family's uh, additions and, and uh, modifications to the castle. So we have this fabulous room, uh, which is very popular today, the drawing room, which was uh, represented by Aster 100 years ago, and it was once the Larder in the Tudor era. Uh, but this room, we will be turning back into a 1920s experience. We're honing in on um, some exciting research, actually recently completed by Gareth Russell uh in his book on the Queen Mother um and we're honing in on an occasion that happens at Heaver Castle and we and we're sort of using that as as an excuse to represent the room as this 1920s drinks and cocktails experience. So the ground floor will be about the Aster experiences. It's it's really crucial that we don't lose them in the story of Hever, although we're all sort of drawn in by the Berlin's and and the Tudors. Um, It's thanks to the Asters that we have the castle in any way, shape or form today, really, anyway. They saved us hundred years ago. So we want that to be on the ground floor, but not losing the original usage of the rooms um, and the usage of the rooms in in the Berlin's time. Upstairs on the middle floor will be uh, the Berlin experience. That's where we will be transforming the family apartments As much as possible, back to how they would have looked in the Berlin time. So I think that's particularly what Owen and I are really excited about. And that will be launching next year. Um, So we really want to make it as faithful as possible. We get one opportunity to do this and we're we're really dedicated to doing it in in the most accurate um, and engaging way possible. We'll be using things like Owen's mentioned that we currently have in the exhibition, more immersive experiences. We want to have soundscapes and smells, you know, ideally things like Rush matting you know we want it to be as faithful and immersive as possible and then on the top floor in Anne of Cleves's own long gallery we will be looking at her story and then uh, as we go through to the gatehouse it will be looking at the medieval history so we're almost going back in time as you go up the castle uh, but using each space as much as possible as it would have been used in those kind of three key eras of Hever's history so it's it's a really exciting time to be busy here
0: it is so exciting. I, I am so excited to to head over next month and see you both again, and to see the castle. But now it seems I have to come back next year as well. So thank you for <laughs> giving me. You do. You do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you,
0: sorry. <laughs> so thank you so much. As always, it's been an absolute joy to speak to the two of you, and I know that our listeners are going to enjoy hearing all about your exhibition. And of course, if you can get to Hever Castle to see the exhibition, it's on until November. Is it?
1: The 10th of November, although Catherine of Aragon's book is only with us until June and then we're exchanging her book with another very exciting book more will be revealed soon <laughs> okay so oh yes still exciting things that's fantastic
0: so if you can to the <laughs> exhibition please do there's also an exhibition book that accompanies that and people can buy it from the heaver castle shop and i know they ship worldwide so that's maybe a good thing if you're if you're overseas and you're not able to to visit the exhibition in person i think that would be a nice thing to do buy yourself the exhibition book co-authored of course by owen and kate and Alison as well is that right yes yeah our head curator Alison palmer wrote this one with us so excellent so thank you again for coming on and talking tutors with me
2: you are so welcome it's absolutely lovely to be back
0: it's always a pleasure well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tutors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.